Okay, I want to welcome everyone to the Starfish and Church podcast today. Uh, we are really excited to have with us our guest, Doug Kirkpatrick. Um, Doug is an organizational change consultant. He's a TEDx and a keynote speaker, executive coach, uh, author, educator. Uh, he's been a regular contributor to the Huffington Post blog on great work cultures. And, and I've just loved your book, Doug. Uh, Beyond Empowerment, The Age of the Self-Managed Organization. And I've told a lot of people about this book. And it's a small book, but man, it is packed. And uh, I figured that it's a small book because you're probably like, well, that's all I needed to say about that. <laughs> so, but, it, but I know that you could say a lot more. But uh, for those of you that are not familiar with Doug and his work and, and really uh, the company's been a part of for years, Morningstar, uh, I always tell, tell everybody. Well, I always tell everybody. I always say, if you've eaten a tomato in the last month, you probably had, or if you if you've had spaghetti or pizza, you probably had the Morningstar product. Is that is that a fair assumption, Doug? Absolutely a fair assumption. Um, Morningstar is the largest tomato processor in the world, and I believe everyone in North America has eaten our product by this time. So it goes into everything in the grocery store that you can think of. You mentioned pizza and spaghetti, but uh, barbecue sauce, taco sauce, uh, steak sauce, fish sauce, <laughs> uh, tomato soup, uh, Bloody Mary mix, uh, the products are endless. And also millions more around the world have eaten it because uh, Morningstar exports uh, globally. Yeah, well, it's, it's well, and the amazing story for me uh, is just uh, your, the way you guys manage. And, uh, and it's in the subtitle of this book, uh, the age of the self-managed organization. That's the subtitle of your book, Beyond Empowerment. Now, if I would like for us to just jump into this conversation right off the bat. Well, let's say, let's just, let me ask this question. If someone were an outsider looking in at Morningstar, kind of tell us the story of uh, what would look different. Like mm -hmm. I, am, I have some experience with tomato processing. When I was 17, <laughs> I threw okay. tomatoes at some people and got arrested. Okay. <laughs> so well, that's, that's about all I know <laughs> about tomato processing at this point. Okay. So, uh, like, assume our listeners, you know, are kind of clueless. Like, what would look different in, is it a factory plant? I mean, what, what does it look like and how does it operate? Self-management. Yeah, well, I'll give you a kind of physical description first. So Morningstar uh, developed a state-of-the-art uh, tomato processing facility in 1990 it it was and is huge um uh in 1990 dollars it cost 28 million dollars mm. i would be double that today um imagine uh large buildings like 40,000 50,000 square foot buildings mm. uh, surrounded by tall uh structures made of stainless steel so there are tons of uh, uh evaporators and and boilers and pumps and turbines and valves and gears and machines. It's uh, when it's running, which is three and a half months a year, July through mid-October. Uh, if you go to the factory, it's about, you know, uh, 100 decibels. Um, extremely uh, fast throughput. Um, unloading uh, trucks full of tomatoes, about 27 tons per truck. Um, uh, unloading maybe up to 30, 35 of those trucks per hour, 
Uh, they feed into a process. The process maybe takes four hours from start to finish. Um, it, when you threw tomatoes and got arrested, <laughs> and, uh, you may not have realized at the time, but a tomato is 95% water. Mm-hmm. And it's only 5% solids and sugar. So uh, the trick of tomato processing is to evaporate the water out of the tomato so that it goes from 5% solids or so to about 30% solids or a concentration of six times. And it's just kind of a constant evaporation process for about four hours. And then at the very end of the process, they sterilize the product and feed it into uh, a filling machine. It fills uh, boxes uh, that weigh 3,000 pounds each. Uh, and those are stored in a warehouse for eventual shipment to a customer somewhere. Heinz ketchup, somebody that's going to make that tomato concentrate into something like ketchup or barbecue sauce. That's kind of the process. It's highly automated. Um, uh, there are lots of people that sort of run the factory, but um, some of the roles are, are very, you know, self-managed one person, two people kind of uh, running the factory from the standpoint of watching all the pressures and temperatures and the equipment and throughput and so forth. So it's a, a very uh, high volume, fast volume throughput process. Uh, high, uh, makes a lot of product. Uh, it runs 24 hours a day, seven days a week for three and a half months. And it shuts down and then it's as quiet as a graveyard for mm. uh, about eight and a half months till we start again. So that's kind of the physical overview. Now, uh, the cultural and organizational overview is if you walk into the control room uh, any time of the day or night and ask the operator, who is probably a highly skilled uh, mechanic, electromechanic, technician of some kind, uh, and ask them, who is your boss? Uh, That person will say, the factory is my boss. Mm -hmm. So the difference is between Morningstar and traditional organizations, uh, there are no human bosses, hmm. uh, literally. Um, so we have. Been- See, and that just sounds like that just sounds like crazy talk, right? To most people. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, more, uh, yeah, uh, more so uh, a few years ago. But yes, yeah. absolutely. Um, it's hard for people. Gee, you know, honey, how, how can that be? I've always been around a boss, you know, and and business schools train managers to scale the the steps of the hierarchical ladder uh, and advance and get promoted. So that's mm-hmm. what uh, most B-School uh, experience is all about. Uh, that's what more, most organizations are all about. So we have titles, we have positions and roles and power and authority and all this stuff. Um, but uh, yeah, we, we abandoned that completely and we found it works really well. Wow. So, and that brings up, that brings up when you talk about empowerment and in particular beyond empowerment, the word empowerment's used a ton. And I mean, you can't hardly pick up a, it's, it's, it's hard to pick up a, a leadership book today without, Hey, we're here to empower people. Um, but you push back against that verbiage, that language. Tell us a little bit about that. Right. <clears throat> so, um, we uh, we basically founded the company and the governance of the company on two core principles, and we we think these are, are the most fundamental principles of human interaction, and they are 
people should not use force against other people and people should keep the commitments they make to each other. Um, these principles are the foundation of all law everywhere mm. in the world. Um, so every law against assault and battery and theft and burglary and kidnapping and murder and all the rest is predicated on the idea that people should not use force or coercion against other human beings. And similarly, the principle of keeping commitments, that's foundational to law, especially civil law. If you think about contract law, it would be meaningless if parties didn't do what they said they were going to do. So we said we're going to embrace these core principles uh, and, and adopt them as the governance, pretty much the entire governance of the enterprise. And so there are some important uh, corollaries to these, these principles. And uh, if you get to the empowerment question, uh, the problem with traditional empowerment is that it involves one person with power lending his or her power to another individual, a subordinate who has less power. And there's a fatal flaw with that uh, scenario because what you loan can always be repossessed. Hmm. So if I have loaned you my power and I decide I want it back, I'll just take it because hmm. I have power. Um, so what we said in, a, in adopting these two core principles is that uh, no one has unilateral power over other individuals. Um, so the, the power isn't something you can lend only to take back at a later date. It's, everyone has all the power they need from the moment they start work. And that power includes the power to communicate, to engage in teamwork, to acquire resources needed to fulfill your role, to build relationships with other people and to do your best job. And everybody has that power. Everybody has a voice. Uh, so there's no sense of uh, one person lending power. Uh, that's not what happens. Uh, so, so we say self-management is beyond empowerment. We say that self-management is power itself. Hmm. What makes self-management work? What are the aspects and the structures and, you know, kind of the key principles and practices that, that, you know, lend to creating a culture of self-management? Well, I mentioned, you know, the two core principles, um, and we adopted those in a, in basically in a construction trailer while we were building our first factory hmm. and, and became self-managed at that moment in time. And uh, so those principles became really the governance, pretty much the entire governance of the enterprise. And and they became embedded in everyday uh, communication. Uh, and, and culture has a lot to do with communication styles um, and leadership. Um, everything we did, we were always cognizant of those two core principles uh, to the degree that if uh, an individual violated one or both of those principles, um, it was immediately called out uh, and spotted and dealt with. Um, so, you know, culture has a lot to do with uh, language. So we talk at uh, Morningstar about colleagues. We don't call people employees. If you look at the literal dictionary definition of the word employee, it means someone who works for another person for pay, mm -hmm. which would be, um, if you have any exposure to millennials at all, that would be the most uninspiring mm -hmm. kind of role you can imagine. 
for most people, and especially millennials and younger. Uh, we call people colleagues because colleague connotes uh, professionalism. We consider everyone to be a professional. Uh, whether you, uh, your job is turning the lights on in the morning or cleaning toilets or, or uh, negotiating for bank loans, it doesn't matter. Everyone is considered a full charge professional and treated as such and respected as such. Um, we kind of obliterated this uh, 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 anachronistic dichotomy between blue collar and white collar. Uh, mm -hmm. That doesn't exist at Morningstar. Everyone is a professional colleague mm. uh, and with all that that connotes. Uh, so we pay a lot of attention to language in the workplace uh, to, to bolster the culture and maintain it. Um, don't talk a lot about HR. You know, as Henry Mintzberg famously said, I'm not a human resource, I'm a human being. Uh, <laughs> so we don't talk about HR. There's no HR department per se. Um, uh, we, we kind of eschew uh, terms like headcount as if people don't have bodies or FTEs as, as, as if people are acronyms. Um, so we, we try to instantiate the language of humanity uh, and bring humanity back into the workplace and, and respect for each and every individual voice. I get, I have a question, yeah. Doug. I can't help, you know, as a church leader, I can't think, help but think of some of our um, really important theological underpinnings. So one of the things that we believe is, it's called the priesthood of believers. In other words, everyone who's a part of this Jesus movement called the church uh, are equal. Like everybody's a priest. It used to be under the old system, it was a caste system. You had the priests and then you had the people. And Jesus removed all those barriers, in essence, is what he's saying, so that there's total equity and everybody's got that stature of dignity now. Mm -hmm. So the problem is people in churches, um, and I think there's something, I love the positive belief you have about humanity. But there's also this dark side where it's like, no, we want a king. We actually want a mm -hmm. boss. Mm -hmm. Like we, and, and so pastors step into this kind of social contract that's literally thousands of years old in the human psyche. And they're expected to be the expert. They're expected to be above the rest. So how, how have you guys deconstructed that in your mm -hmm. context? And how would you recommend a church leader consider deconstructing it in their context? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, <clears throat> so um, there's some really important uh, corollaries that flow from the two core principles that uh, I mentioned earlier. Um, and, and the first thing I'd like to point out is part of the reason they're so inspiring is that if you imagine a world where everyone aligned their behavior mm. with these core principles, you wouldn't need armies or navies or police mm. that walks mm -hmm. on your doors. Mm -hmm. So we know that's not reality, but that's not the point. The point is the closer we approach that kind of ideal uh, future state um, in our organization, the better off we are as people. Mm -hmm. uh, the more opportunity we have for happiness and harmony and prosperity and all the rest. Uh, imagine a world where everyone did what they said they were going to do. <laughs> it would be an amazing world, would it not? But uh, we know that's not reality, but that's not the point. Uh, if we get closer to that ideal, we're better off. And we're better off economically um, because uh, keeping commitments, doing what you say you're going to do, has economic value. Mm. It's the very definition of integrity. 
Mm-hmm. So we're just saying we want to get closer to that ideal state, knowing we'll probably never get there. Um, so we sort of uh, uh, set up this sort of idealistic uh, construct and sort of, you know, kind of try to pull people into the future culturally with that. And then if you look at uh, organizations, you know, how, you know, people want a king, they want a boss, you know, that, yeah, I guess some, some people do. But uh, then they have to, they should probably choose to work for an organization or attend a church where they have a boss because uh, they don't want to work for Morningstar. (laughs) 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 The mission is the boss. And uh, the thing about uh, uh, working in an organization uh, or associating with an organization with no boss is there's, there's no place to hide. Mm-hmm. You know, if something needs to be done and you, you're there and you see that it needs to be done, then it's your job to do it. So uh, the accountability level is not lower. It's, it's actually higher. higher. It's higher. It's actually higher. Yeah, and I also point out, you know, who's more likely to spot a threat or opportunity in the workplace, uh, a boss who wanders through a few times a day or people who are working side by side with each mm-hmm. other all day long and are have full authority to speak up and address issues in real time. Mm-hmm. So if you, uh, if you apply that logic to a church, then, uh, and you want a boss or a king or, or a pastor that's going to tell people what to do, then you should seek that, that kind of place out because you don't want to be in a self-managed organization. Mm-hmm. So for, for a leader that has only known one way of leading is, you know, is, is as a manager, uh, as a as a boss, um, how does that role shift? And you talk about coaching and mentoring. Uh, how does a leader start thinking in his or her head? Uh, here's how my role has to shift my day to day role as far as my purpose here in this organization. Right. So, um, very interesting thing about leadership is that when you uh, abandon command authority. Uh, meaning no one has any authority to tell other people what to do or to direct the activities of other people. That means that everything is accomplished through uh, request and response, mm-hmm. through influence, persuasion, uh, communication, collaboration, request and response. Um, we believe that that creates stronger leaders because uh, if I can just tell you what to do with the expectation that you will obey my directives, uh, that's not leadership. It's not mm-hmm. real leadership. That's just me telling you what to do. Mm-hmm. Um, if I have to um, uh, influence you uh, to, to engage in some activity uh, by building a relationship with you and having uh, mutual trust and respect and communication, we think that's leadership. That's true leadership. Um, command authority causes leadership muscles to atrophy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, earning uh, the mantle of leadership through communication, trust, and respect causes leadership muscles to get stronger. I'm curious, Doug. The uh, Give us a snapshot of let's say um, typically businesses organizations have an annual cycle and they start looking to the future 
And sometimes they'll do like a SWOT analysis or some other tool to get a read on, here's reality, here's where we're going next. In most organizations, there's two or three, four people who sit in a room and then they make those decisions and roll it out. So what does it look like uh, in the self-managed organization? Like what is that process of kind of court, you know, setting the course for the next year, the next season? How does everybody speak into it? Yeah, so uh, very much involves uh, involving every single contributor. Um, it's not just a tiny cohort that, that makes all the decisions on strategy and then uh, gets buy-in for the rest of the organization. Um, so, uh, you know, if you think about the definition of management, uh, the traditional historical definition of management is, you know, planning, organizing, controlling, selecting and coordinating. And so planning is strategy. Organizing is leadership. Um, selecting is hiring and firing. Coordinating is teamwork. Uh, controlling is budgeting, time and resources and money, etc. So um, in self-management, everyone is involved in all those functions of management uh, at some level, it's, uh, to the degree they're interested and, and have the capacity. Everyone is involved in those things. And that's why self-managers often are paid more uh, than uh, traditional managers in, in traditional organizations. Because uh, if you look at Morningstar, the average mechanic um, might be personally in charge of seven to $10 million worth of equipment. Mm -hmm. And they're responsible for strategy and budgeting and capital projects and, wow. and hiring and firing and management. And, and all those things. And so that, that there's a premium of value associated with that. Uh, and Morningstar, of course, does have an annual cycle because it's kind of an annual business, mm -hmm. uh, but uh, it's not a slave to the annual cycle. So uh, it's very much, you know, event-based uh, budgeting. You know, if somebody comes up with some great idea uh, right in the middle of the tomato season and, uh, uh, needs to implement a, a capital project on the fly that could save millions of dollars. Great. Let's go. Let's do it. Um, you know, if it makes sense and the stakeholders uh, are good with it, then, then let's go. Um, so we're not going to wait until the end of the year to, to figure out how we're going to save money, you know, nine months down the road. We're, gonna, we're just going to take advantage of those opportunities in the moment. Mm. Uh, and everyone has the ability to lead and everyone has the ability to innovate. So the beauty of self-management is that leadership and innovation can spring forward from any point at any time. Mm. And uh, there are great examples. Um, uh, a mechanic theorized a, a better way to handle chemicals, came up with a, a sketch, uh, an engineering sketch, sold it to the stakeholders, found some financing, implemented a project, saved millions of dollars mm. in a very short period of time. Um, so these kinds of uh, opportunities are available to every single person. And if you think about an industry, um, then how do you compete against that? If you're limiting strategy and innovation to a very tiny cohort of individuals, um, designated strategists, innovators, um, you're missing out on huge opportunities. Mm. Wow. So there's a giant opportunity cost associated with that. Wow. So you're really in that, you're really leveraging a multiplicity of gifts out of individuals. Because typically we say, okay, here's your job, do this. You're not being paid to think. We want you to pull these levers at the right time, push these right buttons and everything. 
But now you're getting the whole person. You're getting their brain. They're getting the other uh, giftings that you may not even, I'm sure there's a lot of surprises, beautiful surprises that have come out of Morningstar Star workers, I would suspect. All the time. You had no idea this package, you were getting this package when you hired this person. Right, absolutely, absolutely. I was recently coaching um, a millennial uh, back in the Midwest, and they were in a, a, a role in a company where they were probably, uh, the company was probably engaging 30% of their brain power. Mm. They were just like spending time, you know, twiddling their thumbs. Like, well, <laughs> I could be doing lots of things and they won't let me. Mm. This is crazy. So uh, after some coaching, they left that company, got into another company where they're like fully engaged, uh, not to the point of being burned out or overworked, but fully engaged and totally respected and this person said i only want two things i want to be engaged and I want to be respected Just, mm. that's all i need wow Good. wow can, can you give an example doug of maybe a company you've consulted with and worked with that said oh man read your book or you know i've i've i've, I've looked at you know some of the morningstar uh self-management institute uh ide uh, ideology and everything and we we want you to help us get there. But then when you started really unpacking it, they were like, no, nah, I don't think we want to. What's that looked like in your experience in working with organizations that wanted to transition or thought they wanted to? Yeah, it can happen. Um, I would say the kind of common denominator there is that some person, some leader, some subset of leaders, thinks that this would be a cool idea because they've read about it somewhere, heard about it. Um, and so, yes, this would be really cool. And trying maybe we'll get some good PR out of this and, you know, and we can present ourselves as avant-garde, cutting edge, et cetera, et cetera. But they don't realize what's involved. I mean, if you totally embrace the principles that I described, uh, th those are pretty, have, have some pretty radical connotations. Uh, mm -hmm. Um, you have to, number one, believe that human beings have free will, right? Mm, mm. So we, we have the power to choose, right, as human beings. Mm -hmm. uh, if you don't believe that, you're not, not going to end up in a, in a good place. So if you accept the fact that human beings have free will, and it's best that people not use force or coercion, uh, <clears throat> and the people should keep the commitments they make, um, then that leads to all kinds of important discoveries. One of them is it's nobody's job to motivate anybody. Mm. Um, people are going to motivate themselves or they're not because they have free will. So you can yeah. create an ecosystem, an environment uh, that allows people to um, freely engage with each other and do their best work, but they choose not to, then uh, they've made their choice. And, uh, and so you have to decide how you want to handle that at that point. But um, if you don't even believe people have free will, then you're probably into the command and control mode yeah. and, and uh, doing it for the wrong reasons because you think it'd be cool or, or fun or interesting or give you some good PR or something like that. That's uh, not going to lead to a successful outcome. Right. You know, I have a question. Let's say someone's making that series of poor decisions and it's becoming noticeable. Like give us a snapshot. How is that addressed? Typically in the old model, it's like, well, your boss comes down on you and you get written up. Um, 
describe what it looks like in the Calig approach. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <clears throat> so we, uh, there's no concept of progressive discipline because there's no such thing as discipline in self-management. Um, so um, no one has any command authority and no one has any authority to issue discipline in, in a self-managed environment. So what we have is we have a process called gaining agreement. Uh, and this process can be invoked by anyone at any time for any reason. And it can cover uh, the extremely trivial, like what um, uh, uh, weight of uh, copy machine paper should we use in the copy mm-hmm. machine? Or it could cover something that's very uh, jugular, like, you know what? your performance is lacking and I think you need to find a different job at another company. Mm. Um, so uh, the gaining agreement process uh, is a multi-stage process. Uh, so it really starts with a request from one individual to another, a request for change. Um, and uh, so for example, if I see uh, someone driving a forklift in an unsafe manner and I, I just don't think they have what it takes to be a forklift driver mm-hmm. i can ask them to terminate to culminate their services to the company it's not working out uh now a person has uh three possible responses they can agree they can disagree or we can uh come to some negotiated third option neither of us had thought of before so uh in that example if the person agrees to leave and and that does happen by the way um people are asked to leave and they just agree to leave so that ha- that happens um then we're done uh if we negotiate some third option maybe the person says you know what i'll take the next week and i'll take a safety a, a driving safety mm-hmm. class uh to improve my skills um and i agree with that then okay then we're done for the moment uh, but if the person uh, disagrees and just says, now go pound sand, I want to keep driving my forklift the way I want to drive it, uh, and I still believe in my request, then I'll escalate it to the next step, which is to bring in a third colleague to mediate uh, a discussion, and I will renew my request. And at the end of that discussion, uh, and that mediator's job, by the way, is just to mediate and offer their uh, opinion as best they can we have the same three options. So we either agree or disagree or negotiate some third option. If, if we still disagree, uh, then I, and I still believe in my request, we'll bring in a panel or a group of mediators whose job is to lend their voices and their expertise to the situation. And we'll try to work it out. And at the end of that discussion, we still have the same three options. Uh, so if we come to the end of that discussion and we still can't agree and I still believe in my request, then we agree by virtue of being colleagues here and subscribing to these principles that we will document our difference in writing and submit it to binding arbitration. And uh, that is final. So once we submit it, the arbitrator will decide or designate someone else to decide they'll decide and that's, that's the end of it because mm. it has to end somewhere. Right. So um, there is a way to resolve any conceivable situation. Mm. Uh, it does require uh, people to articulate those requests and not to ignore the need to make those requests. So it takes some uh, gumption, uh, some uh, initiative 
on the part of indi individuals to make right. that happen. Right. So that's how it works. Well, when I first uh, read in your in your work uh, about uh, you know that process, and I've seen it in uh, reinventing organizations, that book by Lalau. Uh, first thing I thought it was Matthew 18 passage where Jesus really just goes through that whole process. I'm like, bam, bam, bam. This is just laid out that process just perfectly. Um, so now let's, uh, another scenario. Let's say I'm an office worker. We'll go back to the copier. So we've, we've already agreed on the right copier paper, but, uh, I don't like this copier we've got. And, uh, I did a little Google research and found that, man, there's this other great copier that so-and-so company makes and we can get it for X amount of money. Uh, I think we need this thing. What do I do? Do I have to go ask somebody or is there a committee or is there some kind of form? How do I make a decision on buying this new copier? All right. So the, the, uh, uh, management of copiers and the decisions associated with managing copiers would be owned by someone in the organization. It may be that person. Um, but, uh, you know, Morningstar, we documented every process that needs to be executed for the, the company to deliver value to customers uh, from production to marketing and sales and distribution and administration and finance and all the rest. And then who owns, who's the individual that owns each one of those processes? Um, and for, uh, in terms of owning a process, what is the scope of one's decision-making authority with respect to each process? Mm -hmm. So are you the decision maker uh, and make all the decisions uh, around managing copiers or do you merely make recommendations to another decision maker or do you uh, make decisions based on others' recommendations, or what is the exact scope and quantum of decision-making authority that you possess for this process for which you've agreed to be fully accountable? Hmm. Um, so this is a, a dynamic in self-management whereby um, people are always able to negotiate for greater or lesser uh, quantities of process ownership and decision rights, we call them. Mm. Um, but uh, at the end of the day, every, every process that we need to run this company needs to be owned by somebody, right? It always comes down to a human being. Uh, and then we want to be clear about decision-making authority. Um, so it's all about accountability. It's about transparency. And it's about clarity. It's about being very, very clear about your role. So if someone could come in from another process. Uh, let's say they're in marketing. They could come into administration and say, hey, I've got an idea that intersects your process. And I'd like to basically see if I could increase my, for lack of a better term, like decision rights. Like, would you be open to my input? And that would be something that maybe would work through a gaining agreement process. Mm -hmm. Yeah, with the, uh, most of those uh, discussions just um, play out through the regular course of a conversation mm -hmm. or a series of conversations. Uh, if they reach a point of disagreement and they feel strongly uh, about the issue, they can invoke the gaining agreement process. Absolutely. That's really, that's, that's so good. I, I had a, a Another question that um, it'd be more about your story, your personal narrative. Okay. You know, you you're at this you're at this point in the trailer, 
where you and some other people said, here are the two principles. Like, what was it in your past that triggered that awakening that allowed you to even be able to see that moment in the trailer? You know, what, what was it about your story, your life, your experiences that caused you to be so sensitive and aware to this possibility? A lot of people just don't ever see it. It's like, I've always been over in this kind of vein in these kind of cultures and don't even really, I'm not dreaming about something else. I just want to conquer in this, in this setting, you know? Well, I don't think uh, I was unique in the trailer. Um, we, um, we were working out of a, a really tiny little farmhouse uh, that was about a mile from the job site. And um, we had a core team of about 24 of us. At the time, I think I was the only admin finance type, and then we had a number of technicians, mechanics, electricians, and so forth. And one day, our, our founder, Chris Rufer, came into, into the farmhouse, and he said, I'd, I'd like to call a, a colleague meeting and talk about governance, how to organize this, this company, to have some ideas. So we said, sure. So we, we met with him uh, in the construction trailer, and I think it was a double wide and we had steel folding chairs in a circle and, and he passed out this document and it was called uh, the Morningstar Team Principles. And that's where he articulated the two core principles. And so he described them and we looked at the document and we asked a bunch of questions. And, um, you know, after a couple hours, you know, it's getting late and we're kind of looking at each other going, well, you know, this makes perfect sense. I mean, this is how you know people should live their lives. Uh, I don't. We can't think of any reason not to adopt these principles. You know. So okay, great, we'll do it. Um, I don't think at that moment we quite realized the <laughs> the ramifications of everything that we were doing. But we, yeah, okay, that makes sense. So we did it. Um, and uh, you know, every one of us there uh, had grown up in traditional hierarchical organizations. I mean, if you think of your family uh, in your early life, it was a hierarchy, of course, and and uh, your school experience was mm -hmm. a hierarchy. And uh, several Morningstar colleagues had served in the military, mm -hmm. of course, that's a hierarchy. Uh, and our prior jobs had all been hierarchies. So, you know, this is what we were used to is what we, yeah. uh, had grown up and marinated in. And we said, uh, well, okay, we'll try, we'll try the self-management. Great. Let's do it. It makes sense. Um, you know, I'd, I'd had some, uh, really super command and control, you know, almost like dictatorial <laughs> type situations and growing up in high school and so forth. And so, you know, I was more than ready to try something new and, and uh, you know, stretch and see how it worked. So, um, you know, we just kind of collectively came to, to uh, an agreement that, yeah, okay, we're, we'll put a stake in the ground. Uh, we'll go self-manage and uh, we'll, we'll become the best command company in the world. And so uh, wow. that's kind of what we did. So you didn't have, I mean, I assume uh, there weren't a lot of models for you to go out to. I mean, the internet wasn't even cooking back then. <laughs> even if there had been, there probably wasn't a lot to, I mean, you guys really had to figure this out, scratch it out yourself, I, I'm assuming. Well, and the, uh, the uh, inspiration, the impetus came from our founder, you know, Chris Rufer. I mean, he's uh, a well-read uh, guy, very thoughtful guy, big believer in freedom. Mm -hmm. um, 
uh, libertarian, uh, believe uh, passionately in these, these core principles. And his insight really was, okay, uh, this is what I believe. Why am I not living it in the workplace? Why mm. don't we bring it into the workplace right and, and make it real? Um, there's a, a great uh, uh, leader, CEO called Jean Ramin, uh, runs the world's largest appliance uh, manufacturer called the Higher Group. They're based in Qingdao, China, mm. but they're a global company. Uh, they just bought GE Appliances in Louisville, Kentucky. Um, they have 70,000 employees worldwide. Mm. Um, and he just broke his company up into 4,000 or so self-managed teams. Mm. And uh, he created this giant uh, innovation platform where anyone can innovate uh, create new products or services. If they're successful, they can spin it off into a new company, uh, which they would then run. It's uh, it's amazing. And John Ramin is a very well-read guy as well. And, and he made the observation, you know, your, your declaration of independence in the United States, Thomas Jefferson, you know, you talk about all men are created equal. And then you walk into the average American workplace. Mm -hmm. It's like a little dictatorship. What's mm -hmm. that? You know? Mm. What's that? What's Thanks. up with that? So uh, it's kind of kind of got a point, you know. Wow, absolutely. That's profound. Yeah, it really is. But well, this has been amazing, and your your uh, life's work with Morningstar is such a beautiful gift to the whole world. Yeah. So th thank you. Yeah. Thanks for uh, not giving up on it. Yeah. You know, <laughs> thank we're, you. We're doing our part to pour it into the church, and um, you know, I, I'm kind of curious, but it, we're, we're about to wrap up here, but I'm just curious, have you had many church leaders contact you, faith-based leaders? Have you had much interaction? Yeah, I've had a few. Uh, I've had a few and uh, done some work with churches, um, some leadership development, uh, some coaching, uh, and set up some um, uh, processes so that people, uh, uh, peers in a, in a church employment setting can kind of give each other feedback, create feedback yeah. loops on performance. So I've uh, done some work with churches and it's always interesting. Wow. Yeah, it's always interesting. <laughs> well, hey, Doug, once again, it's an honor. We thank you for coming on. I want to ask um, uh, for our listeners, uh, where's the best place uh, online in particular to, to, you know, uh, connect with your resources and things that you've written or presenting or offering, uh, training, whatever, where should folks go to? Yeah. So I would send them to our website, which is the, the new focus group and it's new focus, uh, group, well, com, and new focus is N U F O C U S group com. Good. Okay. Well, great. Well, thanks for your time, Doug. We Thank really you, Doug. appreciate it. All right, guys. Great to be with you. Thank you very much. Yeah.